Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been since last week? Very well, Gary, thank you. And how have you been? For a second there, it slipped my mind how I've been. I've been good. Or sorry, I've been well. I haven't been, I haven't been doing good. I've just been well. That great line from uh, 30 Rock where Tracy Morgan arrives in and the Harvard-educated black guy when he asks, how is he? He says, how are you doing? He says, I'm doing good. And Tracy Morgan says, no, Superman does good. You're doing well. I've never watched 30 Rock. I probably should. It really is. Alec Baldwin may be a lefty looper, but as a comic actor, he is absolutely fantastic. It's brilliantly scripted as well. But he, him playing sort of the, the crazy Republican is wonderful. I've always thought he was a straight shooter. <laughs> okay, Gary. The, that, we're, we will allow you that one truly awful joke just for today. I, I mean, you laughed at it and he did kill a woman, Michael. See, now, why... A young woman was cut down in her oh. prime, ending a very promising career, and you laughed. It, oh, God, why do you do this? It was, of course, it was a horrible thing, and the woman died. And she, was, you were the one that made the horrible joke. It sounds like you're about to start laughing again now, now that I brought up the fact that you're laughing at a, a young woman's you know, tragic killing. I'm not, I'm now, no, I'm much closer to crying than laughing right now. No, I can, I can hear the edge of laughter coming in in the voice. That's because you're a psychopath. He also severely injured another person, if that makes it funnier. What was the end of that? Or has there, has there been to an end of it? I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's going to trial anyway. Imagine if whatever the results of the criminal trial will be, there may be a civil suit somewhere hanging around there. Probably. Probably. Anyway, so I suppose the big story uh, today is one of the former member, one of the former members of Neffet, giving an interview to the Independent in which he discussed some of the internals of how Neffet came to its decisions, Michael, which could be basically summed up as a bigger boy told us to do it, and so we had to. Bigger boy came along and said we had to. Yeah, I think that is a big story. Certainly, personally, I think. The story, the fact that uh, the tiny towns is the only thing that's standing between us and Hitler, is a bigger story. But I don't want to. I don't want to anticipate your your listing of the stories we're dealing with. No, and we will get to that. The the tiny towns being brought up as the most effective shield against the far the rise of the far right in Ireland in a doll committee. But to just start off with Michael, I just wanted to give a quick note that El Salvador is doing brilliantly these days. I, th I think it's. I think the people need to know about El Salvador. I think what's happening now, we're, obviously, what's happening in, in, is there are things which are happening in El Salvador which we're which are very good and we approve of the, the not killing people. But there are other things in El Salvador which we are as bleeding heart liberals, uh, eternally vigilant of the rights of all mankind, all humankind, I should say, Karen, displaying my privilege there, and which we think are very, very bad indeed. But that it's our job is to inform the people and let them to make their own minds up. And there are some fantastically odd and weird things happening in El Salvador. And the numbers, the numbers are just mind-bending in all sorts of political numbers, crime numbers, prison numbers, all sorts of things. El Salvador has a, not a new president. The president came in in 2019. People might remember him for the uh, the Bitcoin thing, which really don't have time to go into, but was very silly and ended poorly for all involves. Uh, his name is Naib Abukail. I'm assuming I butchered that entirely, Michael, if you've got a better shot at it. I would, I, my, my guess would be Naib Bukele. 
that's probably better, or at least sounds more authentic. Even though he's El Salvadorian, his family's background is Palestinian Christian. So El Salvador is famous for many things, but most prominently is its murder rate, which doesn't really even make any sense when you consider the statistics of El Salvador. The population of El Salvador is a little bit, is a bit over 6 million. So it's a country a little bit bigger than the Republic of Ireland, or roughly the same population as the island of Ireland, just to give people a context of the numbers we're talking about. Yes. So actually, I think the, the entire population, if you take in both North and South, is about 7 million. So that actually makes this even easier because this, this is a lower population than the entirety of um of Ireland put together. I think it's about 6.5 million. In 2015, there were 6,656 murders in El Salvador. Now, could you repeat that number just for the sake of it? 6,656. To put that in perspective, that's more than the entire European Union. So how many murders a day are we talking about there? 18 a day. 18 every single day. Now, obviously, some days more, some days less, but that's your average. Can you imagine that? Opening up your papers and having 18 murders being reported on every single day of the week. Yeah, to give you a, just a, a closer to home example, in Ireland in that year, and again, we have, you know, North, this, this is just the Republic of Ireland, so, you know, obviously the, the population figures are not as close as they would be for the entire uh, island. We had 83 murders that year. We have, we are at the lower end, very much at the lower end of the OECD's murder stats which is a good thing. 83 murders, and they have 6,000 and whatever murders. Okay, so that's in 2015, yes? Yeah, 2016, you get about 5,000. 2017, 18, they fall to the mid kind of 3,500s. 2019, the new president comes in and begins the mother of all crackdowns. Now, let's just put the, the necessary clause here. Human rights organizations are very much not happy with how these crackdowns are being carried out or how much respect is being given for the rights of those who are being rounded up. They are, in general, of the view that this is a very bad thing. The United States has come out and said that the president of El Salvador has made deals with some of the gangs and that that's what drove the violence down. He has denied that. I don't think any uh, real evidence has been put forward to show that's the case. And there have been things in El Salvador against the gangs that would make me doubt if there were deals done, whether those deals would be able to survive the sort of crackdowns that have happened. So he comes in in 2019, Michael. The murder rate, or the amount of murders in 2022, seven years, by the way, after we saw nearly 7,000 murders in this country the size of Ireland, 2022, 495 murders less than 10% of what it was in 2015. The stuff that's been going on around it has been dramatic as well. He has, you know the old, the old question we're always saying about, you know, if we need another prison, we need to open another prison. Well, the El Salvadorians have bitten that particular bullet and they have bitten it hard. There's a new, uh, it's called the government, it's the Terrorism Confinement Centre. I think it's interesting, they basically, I mean, that's, He's a populist. He's a really populist. And he, the language that he's chosen to kind of, to push these reforms is to frame the gang problem as a, for, a problem of domestic terrorism. And so, therefore, in that context, he's called this new prison the Terrorism Confinement Center. It's thought to be the largest mega prison in the Americas, which is a continent with some large prisons, Gary. The facility, the Telegraph reports that the facility will hold many of the, listen to this, 62 thousand people the authorities have arrested 
since the government suspended const some constitutional rights and pushed an all-out offensive in the, against the gangs last March. 62,000 arrests in roughly a, a year. Put that in a bit of context, uh, context Michael. In 2022, there were roughly 4,000 people in prison in Ireland. And again, we have similar enough populations. 40, I think it was 4,100. 62,000 people arrested is, is, is the, the guts of 1% of the population. Really? <laughs> this is, this is, no, you, the question you would obviously ask is, well, um, there, in a place where you like this kind of extremely repre repressive response, there have, it has 32 steel bar cells, which will house more than 100 gang members. Each cell, has iron sheet cabins without mattresses to sleep 80 people. In addition, there are dark, windowless, windowless punishment cells, which will be used for misbehaving gang members. My suspicion is, Gary, this is not the kind of place you'd like to spend a long weekend. You know, I think that there may be a certain amount of internal regulation here. You know, people always say, well, of course, when you get people off the streets, then they, they stop committing crime as a lot, one lawyer observed to me once, the notion that there is no crime in prison is one of the most ridiculous notions you could imagine. So I suspect the, the, the violence it has gone from the streets, it may, that there may be some violence in these places. But Gary, the question obviously would be, well, how, the, this kind of incredible repressive, what the, how would the people react to it, Gary? Have the people been shocked and horrified by the stripping of the rights. Now, actually, what he, he, he has done, as I understand it, my understanding is not perfect by any means, because I've only just been reading about this for a couple of hours, but I just thought it was fascinating. He went to Parliament and managed to get certain exceptions to the constitutional rights that were guaranteed. So there are certain kind, there are certain specific groups or, or individuals, certain kinds of crimes, which, which uh, don't enjoy the same level of protection as other nor other areas of the, of the citizenry would do. So he has created these exceptions. Now, these exceptions, if you're a human rights activist, I suspect you might say that you can drive a coach and horses through these exceptions. They would argue that they're actually a little bit narrower than, than, than that, and there are still significant and real legal protections for the citizenry. However, leaving that aside, we've talked some incredible numbers here, Gary, about murder rates and crime rates and imprisonment. Now let's get on to the politics of it. Tell me, is the president popular? Well, let's, you know, we've got to put this in a bit of context, Michael. As you said, this is a president who suspended, shall we call it, say, some of the constitutional niceties, which is generally you would expect an unpopular step. People don't like things like that. There have been talk about, you know, the wrong people being caught up in these mass arrests. Yes. Um, that innocent people have been brought in. There's a lot of stuff here which could be a bad news story for this guy. And then you have this talk of deals and whether or not he did um, deals with the gangs. That murder rate in 2015, by the way, that was so bad because the previous government had done a deal with the gangs and then they broke that. And in response, the gangs went a bit crazy. Yeah, actions have consequences, Gary. That's the point. The, the gangs were just telling the government actions have consequences, and it's a good lesson for everybody to learn. This man has approval ratings I've never seen outside of an African dictatorship. Or North Korea, maybe. You have, I mean, these are like Gallup polls. They're, they're serious polls. I think it's important to... These are not... These are not polls carried out by the communications directors of the government. This is Gallup. So depending on when he is polled, his polling rating has gone from 
75 to the highest poll I saw him receive, Michael, which was relatively recent, of 96% approval rating. He's got, well, in, when we talk about polls of an individual, you've got what's called your net rating, which is where you take the approval and you take away the people who disapprove of you, basically. So, you know, if 50% of people say they like you and 50% say they hate you, you've got a net of zero. This guy on some of the polls has a net of 88%. That's nonsense. Like, that doesn't happen. But yet, these are serious polling companies. So either there is substantial corruption inside the polling companies in this country, or this guy is just that popular. And normally, Michael, I would say, well, corruption. But then, if you have, like, if the Republic of Ireland had 6,000 murders a year, everyone would know multiple people who'd been murdered. Members of your family would have been murdered. That's just how the stats would play out. And if that was the reality of El Salvador for years, and this guy has actually managed to get the murder rate down to basically OECD levels, yeah, I, I can imagine that those results could be real. Because the violence doesn't just have immediate impacts. So yes, you, you'll see members of your family killed, you'll see all of these things happen. But it's also going to drive poverty, it's going to keep businesses out, it's going to have impacts across a massive level of things that are going to impact on everyone's day-to-day -day lives. So if he could, if he has actually done this, if he has fixed it up, it's probably the only circumstance in which I could say, yeah, a 90% approval rating might actually be possible because you've taken a country that was non-functioning and made it at least temporarily functioning. Just think of, think of also, the 18 murders a day, that's a headline figure. If you're talking about gang, these are 18 murders a day, principally those murders have been driven by gang violence. Now, underneath that, are not just the murders. They're the beatings, the 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 kneecappings, the leg breakings. Then there's the drug dealing, the theft, the extortion. You know they they, they say the, oh, what is it? Uh, for every if you, if if a hundred thousand people or soldiers die in battle, you can assume that another what is it three hundred thousand or four hundred thousand are injured because there's a kind of an arithmetic to the nature of the thing. So if you've got that kind of level of violence at the top end of murder. The crime that's going on underneath that is going to be savage. I mean, and of course, the people that always suffer in a, in a society, in El Salvador is a developing country and has, like all developing countries, fairly dramatic levels of inequality uh, economically and opportunity-wise in it. The people who suffer the most are always going to be the poorest people. And if you look, if you look at the community, the, the poorest communities, the level, the level of insecurity that those people will be experiencing, the sense of being unsafe for those people will have been dramatic. And he's come along and grad. I mean, you, uh, we were talking before, for 80 murders a day. The numbers aren't stalling either. You were saying about the numbers, if the, the numbers January, February? Yeah, if the numbers that they've posted so far this year, and obviously these can change, stuff can be late reported, and, and this is all very, very provisional. El Salvador will come in with a murder rate that is not just low, but which is sub 1%, and substantially sub 1%. Now, whether or not that actually comes out in the wash is a different thing. There have been periods during this fall where there have been spikes um, because the gangs have not liked what's happened. In 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 this is it this year they've gone for a period of thirty five days without a murder. Which I mean, in El Salvador is is 
Again, ridiculous. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. 18 a day down to 35 days without a murder. Um, he is, of course, like you said, I mean, they're incredibly heavily criticised by both domestic and international uh, human rights organisations. Many international governments have criticised him. Within El Salvador, he's been taught, called an autocrat, a caudillo, you know, a strong man. No, you can take this as you wish. He has referred to himself, Gary, as the dictator of El Salvador, the coolest dictator in the world, and, this is my favourite, the emperor of El Salvador. Getting very Napoleonic there. Well, I, it's, this is, these are supposed to be kind of er ironic responses to the critique that he is, in fact, behaving like a caudillo, that he, oh, yeah, I, I'm the emperor of El Salvador. There is something vaguely Trumpian about him, in fact, that kind of language. I was actually thinking of um, of Macron. Macron, really? Well, Macron and his um, Jupiterian presidency. All right, yeah, maybe. I don't know, it, but it, it's, it's an incredible story. Now, his critics will say, listen, He's doing something he's managed by mass incarcerations, trampling over the rights of people. He has produced this temporary blip and he's going to attempt to continue with permanent exceptions, which means that you know the exceptions cease, they're not really exceptions anymore, and it becomes concretized. And eventually, because all of this crime and all of this stuff is actually rooted in the deep economic inequalities of the society, that the, all of it will just inevitably come back anyway. This is just a calming period. However, and while there may be, we, we, the future will, will tell us the answer to that. We, we don't know. And you know, on the face of it, it's not an unreasonable thing to say. Because of this dramatic turnaround, it's had effects on the economy as well, hasn't it? Well, it seems to be, as we said, if, you, if the state cannot maintain its monopoly on violence, it's very difficult for businesses and things to come in because your property rights won't be secured by the state. I don't think it's terribly surprising to anyone that a country that's been run effectively by gangs in large parts may see economic benefits to becoming a functioning state. Yeah. Um, Central Bank has estimated the GDP in 2021 is going to grow, will grow by uh, 20, 10 10.3% and will continue to grow by another 3 or 4% in 2022. Which that was, uh, whether or not, and that was after they had a, a pretty deep COVID, uh, COVID uh, dip. But the economy is doing, it's not doing Guyana levels, but then again, they didn't just discover oil reserves the, sound of, the size of Saudi off the coast there, which Guyana did. Um, we should all be living in Guyana right now. I suspect there are possibilities happening there that are just fantastically unimaginable. He's just, an, he's a really interesting guy, isn't he? I mean, he may turn out to be an absolute bastard. You have, yes, there are obviously issues. There are things there that I don't think you could do in a Western European country just wouldn't wouldn't fly. But at the same time, I am quite enjoying how salty a lot of the left-wing papers and uh, sources are about this. You're getting this very sort of, well, yes, I mean, he stopped the violence, but he didn't deal with any of, you know, the inequality, so this isn't really a win. And there seems to be this sort of, oh, well, you know, it won't solve it permanently. But in a sort of, I kind of hope this doesn't solve it permanently way. No, I think there's, it's worth it's worth noticing that the, the fact that the, the left-wing journals around the world are salty towards him is possibly influenced by the fact that it's not just his approach to the criminal justice system, but he has other cultural positions, cultural 
political, whatever you want to call them, that won't draw their admiration. He has said, for example, that during his uh, tenure, the Legislative Assembly will not decriminalise abortion, it will not legalise same-sex marriage, and it will not legalise euthanasia. He believes that marriage is between a man and a woman. He said that abortion is the greatest genocide we've ever committed. So those are not positions that are going to get you good press across the uh, the liberal liberal media across the rest of the world you know that's just not going to happen no no and look this may all end horrendously but even if it does and this is a temporary blip it cannot be overstated the difference this will make to the lives of the average person reducing violence by this amount is just an incredible feat it also michael you know for all this talk of well we can't just imprison everyone you know we've got to focus on rehabilitation and getting these people back into the community this would tend to indicate that actually yes you can just imprison everyone and crime will go down crime will go down substantially because most of the people who committed that crime can no longer commit that crime yeah you could say that it, it, i mean you have to make the, the fairly obvious observation in ireland you, you you couldn't imprison everybody because even if you wanted to the teacher could not be a to go into the doll tomorrow and just legislate for exceptions to the constitution you'd have to ask the people and i my guess is the people were asked for these kinds of exceptions they would say no thanks awfully but thanks for asking however i put this put this to you leaving aside all of the the detail shall we say the constitutional niceties as you quoted there shortly Imagine yourself the leader of a political party in Ireland or in any part of the Western world, but you, and somebody puts a, across your desk a series of the figures on the polling that's been done on his government and his leadership in the last few years. In, and you see these numbers. I don't think there's a politician in the in the democratic world that wouldn't look and go, wow, is there something we can do like that? Even if we don't do all of it, Jesus, that looks like something we should try and look at at the very least. Well, I mean, Michael, as we were saying when we were going through his popularity polling uh, before the show, the numbers just don't look real. Like the approval they don't. ratings for people on the gang crackdown are topping 90%. I don't think there's a policy that an Irish government has implemented in the last 20 years that would hit 90% approval. If you were looking at a president or a prime minister in most the, of the developed world and their approval rating was up like 56, 57%, that would be regarded as fantastic these days. It, 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 or at the very least, very good. I mean, if it was a peacetime, peacetime poll, that kind of numbers would be very good. 90%, 95% approval rating, that's North Korea, that's... Albania under Enver Hoxha. It's just unreal. And you have to imagine <laughs> trying to get somebody to run against him in the next election is going to be tricky. Yeah, I'm going to run against him. Yeah, that, that's how I'm going to spend my time, my money and my effort is trying to run against somebody who has a 95, a 90 plus approval rating. Yeah, that, that's going to be a sensible use of my time. You run and then you just hope that one of the gangland figures kills him. He, well, I, you know what? I, th there is always that hope. I suspected those circumstances that his vice president would step in and his his popularity would go up to 98%. And the gangs might find that even more of their membership was 
Good. If anybody's interested, they should have a Google uh, just just to uh, Google the prison, but just to see some of the pictures, because I mean, it's not it's it, these are not pictures that we we would feel at all comfortable with in a country like Ireland, where you have these guys kneeling down on this vast uh, expanse, concrete expanse. They're just packed together. They're wearing white shorts. Their heads are shaved. They're, they're packed into like sardines in this particular. I don't know what's going on. I I suspect that it they are put across. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight across, and then I don't know how many in in a line. I suspect this was actually done for a photo, just to give a sense of the incredible brutality. You cut either side, you see just grey bars and grey concrete walls and prison officers with shields and helmets, that kind of black paramilitary look. Gary, I, I don't know if you've seen these particular photographs. I think you did. You have to say there is. they do look a little bit like stormtroopers in black. I don't know if that's accidental as design feature either. But it is, um, I imagine if you're a poor person living in El Salvador, you look at these guys with covered in these blue tattoos. Their heads are shaved and their skulls, again, covered in these ta- these gang tattoos and gang signs. Michael, here's, to maybe put, we were talking about putting this in context for the Irish audience, how bad things were in El Salvador. Do you know how many people are estimated to have died during the entirety of the troubles? Yeah, I see it, which would be less than died in the whole of the, in, in one year in 2015. It would be about, well, the estimates on this obviously range a bit, but usually they're in the kind of three and a half thousand, they kind of go from like three, three to maybe three, six. So if you take the low estimate of that, Michael, more people die anyway in 2015. Yes, more people died than in the Troubles. But if you take the low-end estimate of the deaths and the Troubles, twice as many people died in El Salvador in 2015 as died in the entirety of the Troubles in one year. That's dramatic. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, and again, it must be absolutely horrific if you're experiencing that level of violence around you and then the concomitant criminality that goes underneath that. The one thing I, I haven't I haven't been able to find that I would have quite liked to find is, and I must put some more effort into trying to take this up, is stats on associated crimes in El Salvador, like rapes, serious assaults. You'd assume they have also gone down heavily, but I haven't been able to uh, find actual stats on it. And El Salvador has historically not been very good on particularly stats in relation to sexual crimes, uh, but it has also historically been horrific in a way that it simply isn't outside of certain regions of the world. So the Dahl Committee, Michael, that you wanted to talk about. Lots of things happening there. I mean, what I, I think we both, because I know you were... Uh, you were saying to me that you were fascinated to discover that we had this was in evidence given by the head boss person of the far right observatory, I think, wasn't it? Neil MacDonald said that uh, what the tidy towns. I want to get this vaguely right. Anyway, was the one of the the one of the most or the most effective organisation we had for the for opposing far right bigotry. That was the general gist of it. This was at a uh, joint committee of the Children Equality Disability Integration and Youth, and they were of course talking about uh, well the hottest topic in town at the minute: uh, asylum seekers, refugees, and the far right. So they had a couple of people there from very various groups. The most interesting ones are Likela, which is a another uh, high level, I don't know actually how to describe it, 
The other NGOs come in behind them and then it acts as an organising body in relation to certain things, which no one seems to be exactly clear on what it is or exactly what they're doing. But anyway, they were there. And then there was also the Far-Right Observatory, which was Neve MacDonald and Mark Malone. Malone is the research lead and MacDonald is the coordinator. Now, the Far-Right Observatory is uh, run by a group called Uplift, who are a progressive, what would you call it, Michael? Uh, progressive, you, you go on a petition website. Sorry, they're a progressive petition website. No, but just, just to contextualize, because Jesus, these people are quoted very often in the press, like they have some kind of expertise. And in some sense, they're coming from a position, a benign position. Who is it? The Irish Network Against Racism, Irish Council Facilities, Migrant Rights Centre, Symptom, Unite, Community Work Ireland, Movement of Asylum Seekers, and Trans Equality Network of Ireland, also known as TENI, Paddy Point, the National Women's Council of Ireland, and academics and activists countering far-right extremists. Now, I don't think it would be unfair to, Gary, to observe, Gary, that these are a group of people that we might describe as being solidly of the left. Well, the Far-Right Observatory, interestingly enough, uh, had a training day with the Labour Party there, I think, last Saturday. Uh, they pop up fairly regularly amongst the general left-wing crowd. But, you know, Michael, these days, who isn't in the left-wing, in the NGO and political space? The point is simply this, Gary, that I'm not sure that the best people to really understand in a neutral and sensible way what constitutes centre-right, right, hard-right and far-right are people who are on the far left. That's fine. They can do what they can advocate, they can take a position and they can take it, and they certainly do. But I think that when people are discussing them, whether it's on the radio or whether they're talking to maybe the odd time of TV or reporting them in the paper, that it's that there's a context to this, that you see that these people are coming from a position and that there are plenty of positions that people who perhaps are on the centre might not regard as being anything other than just normal, ordinary, everyday, centre-right, Tory kind of positions. Are you implying, Michael, that when you might have a situation like, let's say, the original founding of anti-fascistic action or Antifa in Germany, where it was set up as a solidly Stalinist organisation, which meant they took Stalin's definition of fascist, which was effectively anything that was in the way of the communists. Not, not just not just in the way of the communists, anything which was not specifically sanctioned by the communist international in Moscow. So you could you could be. You could be on the left. You could be something like, I don't know, uh, from the the British utopian socialist tradition or the Chartist tradition. Or what somebody once observed about the Labour Party, that the Labour Party was a lot more about, was a lot more Methodist than Marxist. So you could be from that Christian socialist tradition. But the point, this, the political point to the international point that Stalin was wanted to be, but internally and externally, was that if it wasn't, didn't toe the orthodox line of the of the inter, the Marx the, the international in Moscow, then you were you were a fascist and you had to be opposed. Which is why who did they oppose in Germany, Karen? Was it the Nazis? Or, no, it wasn't. It was the Social Democrats because the Social Democrats they perceived as being the greatest danger to them. Well, no, Michael. Let's be fair. They did oppose the Nazis when it was convenient for them. They just all accepted that the Social Democrats were worse. Are you implying that that, that this is the same sort of situation? And when these people say far right, they may not be using far right in a way that other people might use it, and that there may in fact be some political element to their usage of it, or maybe even a deliberate attempt to delegitimize 
politics that they are opposed to by hitching them onto a, a name they know is going to hurt them with the public? Surely not, Michael. Nothing at all. Not from a group using public money. Not from a group using public money. 112,000 euros worth of public money. No, God. I just wonder, Gary, if they spent 15 minutes in a room, would they consider you far right? Well, I have, we, we have heard from some of the, shall we say, Michael, uh, off the record things that the far right observatory has done that gripped comes up in them and uh, not in not in terribly complimentary ways and listen you can do what the hell you like with your own members money my my objection to this is that they're not spending their own members money they're spending your money because they get 112,000 in what was it they get 112,000 public funding and then the same amount again from rethink rethink ireland's equality fund now, where does Rethink Ireland get its money from? Well, partially from um, private donors, and partially, I believe, from the Dormant Accounts Fund. Dormant Accounts Fund. Well, there you go. I, I suppose, Michael, actually, if if it gets its funding from the Dormant Accounts Fund, we should probably say that that's... I mean, the government has control of those funds, but you know, public funding is perhaps not exactly accurate. Maybe funding the government took from people. So I'm just getting... The, the big point of this is, of course... Um, when you told me this first, I, I thought, no, this, this is one of Gary's funny jokes. The tidy towns. Can you explain to me, or is there any explanation available, why the tidy towns are a bulwark against fascist hate? Not really. I mean, it had come up earlier. One of the politicians, I think Mark Ward, had mentioned something positive about tidy towns, that people had been involved in it. And so maybe they were trying to link it on to his statement. I know you're, you're, you're loath to look into the hearts of other human beings and try and divine what their ideas or their intentions are. But I'm, I'm curious if you had an opinion or if you're aware that there had been, a, if Miss McDonald had expanded or expounded these points in further detail. The government needs to invest, quote, invest in strategic communication support. And on with progressive policy. Now, progressive, as we know, is a word which means left wing. That's uncomplicated. So the government has to fund left wing policies. The Fine Gael government has to fund left-wing policy on housing, energy, cost of living, safety, and sex education in schools. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, this is feel, feeding racism and xenophobia, and it's called the far right what they are, haters, dividers, and fascists. While also saying that we, the FRO, are also worried about sex education and how that is presenting itself. What? What? Can you help me there, please? What What the? Is that about? Well, Michael, I think it relates to a part where they're basically saying the far right, um, as they say, comes in many forms. And that, it, you know, it will be anti-immigration in certain areas. It will be opposed to the, as they say, the trans community in others. It, um, it will be opposed to the LGBT community. And that basically they're saying that because of that, we need a, a whole of society approach, Michael, which incidentally means promoting and implementing all of the policies that these people would support the implementation of where they're no fair right, which is massively convenient, I must say. Well, you could say convenient, you could say coincidental. Yeah. But there you go. And so the point is, once you once you, you do that kind of thing, then the people on in the east wall will stop being unhappy, or we will, or we will stop listening to the people in the east wall because we'll understand that they're just a bunch of haters, dividers, and fascists. Is that it? The, what they actually said about the tidy towns competition is this. Uh, this is from Neve McDonald, who is the coordinator of the far right observatory. In the work I do, I 
come in, I, I want to complement the many tidy towns committees across the country. In the work I do, I come into communities to give supports and the tidy towns has emerged as one of the most proactive anti-far-right progressive organizations. I think, Michael, that we've got to consider something here. This, this whole thing where we've got to change all of society to combat the far right, but the far right can also be uh, fought against through the medium of tidy towns committees. Umberto Eco, as I'm sure you're aware, Michael, in his description of the core of what he called ur-fascism, said that one of the key of uh, key parts of fascism was that the enemy is both too strong and too weak. And you can kind of see that in Nazi Germany, particularly when they talk about Jews, Michael. The, the weird incoherence that at the, at, at, on one hand, Jews were these subnormal, parasitical, unintelligent creatures. And on the other hand, they were running a world government with their superhuman finance brains and just secretly pulling the strings of government all over the so there was this odd dissonance between on one hand make a very weak opponent on one hand a, a, a superhuman opponent so yes i i think then michael we've got to ask a question have these people stirred so long into the abyss that it has stirred back into them and has fascism taken root in the heart of the people meant to be protecting us from fascism? And is that why, Michael, they're aligning themselves with, and I'm sure this is an uncontroversial statement, anyone who's dealt with a tidy towns committee, the group in this country which comes the closest to just being an explicitly fascist organisation? <laughs> yeah, that is an uncontroversial opinion, absolutely. Um, and you do like your abyss, don't you? You do like your abyss. And you have to wonder, Gary, what kind of person reads Nietzsche, really? What kind of person is that? I do like the abyss, Michael. And I think part of our job as podcasters, as journalists, as entertainers, is to remind people constantly of the yawning void which is just outside their vision at all times, and which they will inevitably end up in. I suppose that's the difference between you and me fundamentally, Gary, is the, the abyss. You see the abyss and you just hop over it onto the other side, like Nietzsche would. I, on the other hand, am much more like Kierkegaard, and I see the abyss and I am filled with fear and trembling and nausea and angst. And a sickness unto death. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody who is not filled with sickness unto death is Ned O'Sullivan. Ned O'Sullivan, who was at this uh, at this meeting and, to be fair, was not having a lot of it. Yeah. Ned O'Sullivan apparently doesn't, is, is unconcerned by the abyss because he doesn't think it's abyss. He thinks it's more of a, it's a ditch, rather. He said, oh, here the quote is, I do not buy into this idea of the far right in Ireland. I think it has been told, blown totally out of proportion, much of which I think has been done for political reasons by people who are on the far left, I do not see a far right in Ireland. Well, you could have knocked me down with a feather, Gary. Somebody speaking the plain and obvious truth. The astounding thing about this is not what he said, because what he said is actually very, very common sense. Most of it is very sensible. Pointing out that the people before who are, who are telling him about this have both financial and ideological interests in what they are saying. That means they should not be, you know, without question trusted. The astounding thing is that he's the first politician I have heard say in public or on the record, is this not just nonsense? Like, do you have any actual evidence of what you're saying? He goes on to say that many of the people, because he said that he wants to make the point on behalf of the decent people that he talked to, that many of the people who are protesting or who have expressed real concerns are not of right. They're not Nazis. They're not fascists. There are people who are afraid. Very often there are people afraid of the unknown. If there has been a deficiency, it has been of information, which is, I think, something we've been saying for a while. It is, I know, a great old cat that you can oppose. You can oppose some, 
to something to say it was not communication properly, very often a breakdown in communication is the core of the problem. I agree in a degree that I think it's also simply a problem. Direct provision and the nature and the way we're doing direct provision for these people. And I would say, by the way, just the, very often these unfortunate people. I think, Gary, neither you or not, nor I would like to be one of the people living in the conditions that pertain, for example, in the ESB office on the North Wall. I, I don't know, did you hear that inf- that interview? Uh, Fasma Gunning did a, a piece for Grift, and she, she talked to a man who was in the, the DP there on East Wall with his daughter and was absolutely afraid for the safety of his daughter in those conditions. And also just well, there were four or five washing machines for 500 people. You had to get up at four o'clock in the morning if you had any hope of getting. There was a similar number of showers, trying to keep your clothes clean, trying to keep yourself clean. No privacy, no security. You have it, you're living in a little cubicle where the lock on your door is basically just one of those magnet things that a good kick will open it up. And you're there, you're surrounded by young men. And I'm, I don't know, I, I imagine the great majority of them reasonable human beings. Most human beings, reasonable. But you're there and you're with your daughter and she just felt very uncomfortable, very unsafe and really rotten conditions. You know the old quote that Oscar Wilde, the, the old Oscar Wilde quote, when he's standing and he's been convicted and he's standing and waiting to be taken to, to, to jail and it's piss and rain and he's miserable and he said something like, well, if this is Queen, you know, he's been held at Her Majesty's pleasure or something like that. You know, if this is the way the Queen treats her prisoners, she doesn't deserve to have any. <laughs> well, you know, if this is the way we treat our asylum seekers, we don't deserve to have any either. You know, it's just a question about who we let in. But, you know, when we do, if we did have a functioning system, this is not the way to treat people. Simply, this is not the way you should be treating human beings. And genuine asylum seekers who are fleeing I've met a guy, Gary, recently, uh, who was an asylum seeker in the north of Ireland. And in fairness, I, I, be- I believe that what he told me was true. And maybe I was wrong, but allowing that what he said was true. He was a gay Christian herd in Iran. Yeah, that's... Uh, just looking at the high level of that, that's not a good combo. You know, it's not a good combo. He's gay, he's Christian, and he's Kurdish. And he's in Iran. And he's in Iran at the minute, right now. So I'm not going to go like that. I'm thinking, you know what? I think there's a decent chance that he's not going to be treated uh, fairly or indeed safely in that regime. Actually, one one thing on Ned O'Sullivan that I did like is that Ned O'Sullivan came out, said these things, and the NGOs took it fairly well, actually. They took it in not good spirits, but they responded politely, which as anyone who has seen Sharon Keoghan try and speak in the Shannon recently is something that can no longer be taken for granted. But... They basically gave him a bit of a slap down and said that his comments were the sort of thing that only someone who was in a uh, you know safe space and not in the real world could say. And he came back and, and said that he had spent 40 years in politics, he'd, he'd contested 13 elections, and he knows all about people's problems, which is a fair point. For all that we say that politicians are out of touch, particularly older politicians, you tend to know what's happening on the ground. You do. And if you 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 have been a councillor in a TD and you have contested 13 elections, the fact is, you know, for a long, very long time anyway, if you didn't know what was going on the ground, you were, you had no bloody chance of getting elected. So, but also, isn't that, Gary, isn't actually what they did there just a classic example of what they're, they always do now? But they're not actually saying you're wrong. What they're saying is, shut up. 
you don't get to have an opinion. You have no right to have an opinion. Your opinion, if you have one, is valueless because you're mired in your white male old man privilege. You're living in, you're not living in the real world. So he so shuts up. I think it actually functions much like fair right. You can use it to delegitimize the opinions of someone and therefore not have to engage with them at all because they're simply not valid, um, which I think is, is pretty much what happens here. But I would make the point, Michael, that a rural politician who's been in the game 40 years probably has significantly more awareness of what the general public in his area feel and their concerns than any NGO type has. Now, some of those NGOs are going to have an awareness of certain people in communities, in certain communities. But a group like the Far Right Observatory has no grassroots amongst the general population. They might be able to draw people from other left-wing organisations, but those are activists. Those aren't members of the public. And what an activist is concerned about and what the actual public are concerned about are generally, in any topic really, not the same thing. Well, so we've all been, well, we, we all have we all have our, our, our tendency increasingly uh, across the Western world to live in delineated bubbles of our our, our own experience of our people who share views like us. I think culturally, if you're on the right, it's much more difficult to do that simply because the culture around you, whether it's TV or music or cinema or the, the media generally, the, the culture just generally is more sympathetic to the left. Therefore, you tend to be more aware of the left. And we know that when social experiments have been done, that people on the right are much better at predicting what the actual views of people on the left are than people on the left are of predicting views on the right, even though neither te- at times can be are terribly good at either of them. And, and they're not very good at understanding how empath- potentially empathetic either side can be. When you get at the operational ones of these, and I'm not talking about people, say, who are working directly hands-on, say, with people in homelessness or dealing with addiction or that kind of problem. But when you go f- farther up the, the food chain, these elites, I've been at dinner parties where I've been the only conservative there, and I'm there for other reasons, shall we say. And... The degree to which these people are living in a detached bubble, and it's nothing new. I'm, I think I might have mentioned before, there's a famous <clears throat> quote going back to 1972, where the literary editor of the New Yorker, the New Yorker was great, once upon a time was the great literary magazine of the United States and one of the great magazines of the world, yeah. was casting doubt about the results of the 1972 presidential election. When she, she I think it was she, said, she literally, she did literally did not know one person who had voted for Nixon. How could this election be re- really be like this? And if you remember, Nixon won in a landslide in 72. I think he took 49 states or something. It was a landslide anyway. But we believe, I think, absolutely you can believe that somebody living in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, who was the literary editor of the New Yorker, would not have known anybody who would have admitted to voting for Nixon. Or indeed, me, have voted for Nixon, did they? The, and we here we are more than we're fifty years on, and I th- that has only got worse. So the level to which that these people are more connected with the reality of the what people are experiencing as opposed to Ned, I think I'll take Ned on on this one at least. So just Michael, very briefly, just before we go on the the Nefish. Uh interviews and the, the NEFA pieces that are in the independent. And we're not going to go into this in too much detail because I think people um, may want to actually read this themselves. Basically what it is, is one of the NEFA members, uh, Professor Martin Cormican, who is 
an expert in infection control, he was with the, the HSE, has um, come forward and talked about his experience in Neffet. And it's very interesting. And it, it backs up, I think, Michael, a lot of what people were saying that they thought was happening with Neffet. But there's a difference between thinking that something is, is happening and someone from the inside coming in and going, yes, this is how this is being run. These are the things we did. These were the mistakes that, that we think we made. Um, so he, he talks about the school closures. He talks about the nursing home, the, the ban on visitors. He says they were inhumane. But he also goes into things like the mask mandates, some of the lockdowns, um, the substantial meal, if you recall, Michael. Yes. I think one of the, the sentences that, that jumps out uh, is at the very first meeting of the expert advisor group, I was making this point about the consciousness of collateral damage or unintended consequences. And if we were going to pick out one theme of failure throughout the response, it is the unwillingness to recognize that in this situation, as in all situations where you're making essentially political decisions, you're talking about trade-offs and trying to balance, make a balanced approach based on what are the consequences, the short-term and then the medium and the long-term consequences of collateral damage or unintended consequences. And I think that that was, that seemed to have been, shall we say, there seems to have been a, a refusal to even countenance that kind of analysis. No, and now we have a member of Neffet saying that some of the decisions were excessive, damaging, and based on fear. Not based on the science. God, I'm so sick of that. You follow the science. Yes, what was it, Michael? Follow the science, which is, seems interesting because one of the people behind the science, trademark, uh, now comes out and says, well, some of the decisions were excessive, damaging, and based on fear. Yeah. That, uh... I imagine there's going to be a certain amount of people who are rather happy to have this uh, man come out and say these things. I imagine there will be a similar amount of people deeply unhappy that he had the uh, the audacity to come out and say them publicly. And I think everyone else will just have a weary sense of acceptance. I would go back to one thing. One, not that anybody cares, but at least because we were doing this and we were doing this a lot during COVID, we are we we are on record in a sense about our opinions about this. One thing we we I think we we both said a number of times was, and I still think this is true. And there's going to be an awful lot of noise and a lot of discussion, a lot of people trying to score points. I don't think we're going to be in a position to make any kind of serious or definitive understanding of what we got right, what we got wrong, how much we how bad, what percentage one thing was right and one thing was wrong. For a, num for a number of years, yes. It's going to be years before we're going to be really in a position to, have, to really fully understand. I think we're going to find increasingly things that we thought were working that actually have no effect at all. Things that we thought were good were actually bad. Things that we should have that could we should have done and could have done that would have had small costs that could have had very significant advantages. I, the more we study it, the more it's going to come out. Um, but it's but Gary isn't. The most depressing thing about this, that again, what we're going to see here is football teams. It isn't going to be. The, I'm sure there will be a certain number of people who will make a good faith effort to say, okay, let's sit down and try and understand what happened here and try and understand how we can be better and how, what we should do in the future. But so much will just devolve again to weird 
football team approach thing. And the, it was the whole thing was weird when you look back at it. All the all the the sort of the, 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 the the social psychological and sociological predictions about about how people react politically to a pandemic would suggest that people on the right are more sen- tend to be more sensitive to issues around infection and people on the, the left left so therefore you're going to have left wing uh our uh, left wing government's going to be left wing groups are going to be more liberal, more open, less paranoid, less neurotic. Right wing groups are going to be more shut down, closed down. But we had this weird flip in the States it went one way, and then with Trump, then it went another way, and then it became a thing that it was all about freedom, and the mask mandates were evil, and the Republicans were all about freedom, and anti, but the Democrats were all about follow the science and close everything down. In Europe, it was eminently liberal Sweden that was the outlier in the approach, and the politics got all weird, but it, it ended up just being a kind of a... To be fair, I'd say the Swedes were probably the ones that kind of stuck to their scientific guns, genuinely said, okay, well, this is this is what we think the science is telling us. And I think, as we said at the very beginning of this, the WHO's initial, everybody had a plan, WHO had a plan to deal with the pandemic, and one of the things that was explicitly said was, lockdowns won't work. As you said, Michael, the advantage is, is that we were here doing a lot of stuff on this. So we can kind of say we have a record that I think actually in review, holds up probably worryingly well. One of the things we we brought up quite a lot, Michael, was that there are trade-offs in all things, and simply locking down consistently is going to have consequences. We talked a lot, Michael, about the initial paper in England which showed, uh, which sorry, which estimated the amount of increased cancer deaths there were going to be because yes. the um, the systems to detect cancers basically had gone offline due to lockdown. And we talked about that, and we talked, I think, about um, other issues that would come up. And then you have, in the, also in the Irish Independent there on Friday, Michael, they had an explainer, which was titled, The COVID pandemic is over, so why are more people dying? Which was basically going into the, exec, the excess death rates. And they were talking about a couple of things that could cause it. They were saying that there, you know, there was the cancer things, there was the fact that isolation may have weakened immune systems, and then when people came out of isolation, they just got walloped by things that in the normal course of affairs, you would pick up very minute doses and you would kind of build up an awareness to them. And I think that, that I think is, is, is borne out anecdotally from what I've seen of people since we've got out of lockdown. Nearly everyone I know has just gotten sick in a way I've never seen people get sick before with the kind of recurring infections you would expect in the elderly. Like getting sick, then better for a while, then getting... And it's never, or at least I haven't seen, incredibly serious, but it's just weird. I've talked to a few GPs who have said to me that one of the things they're seeing uh, this winter, he said that people have this sense that they, they're getting a bug and they just can't shake it off. But all of them said to me that, they, that what they think was actually happening is that people are getting a series of viral infections of a kind that they would normally either not, maybe it wouldn't just catch it, it would just be, or it would be beaten up, or it would be far less, uh, they would affect them far less, but they're just getting one after another after another because in some sense they'd had a, that, that lack of exposure that, that we've had as a population has maybe affected that. I don't know. We, we, it, it, one of the things I'm curious to see, and I'm, I'm very skeptical about all the anti stuff, but then we'll see. 
there may be some stuff to come out about the vaccines. I'm not saying about the vaccines killing millions and millions of people because I'm very skeptical about that. But about the run-up to the vaccines, the speed at which they came, the claims that were made and the science on which the basis for those claims were made. I mean, we're now... You see, it was a Fauci saying stuff like, oh, it's now clear that uh, the immunity that you get from one infection is superior to X number of uh, vaccinations and all vaccination doesn't uh, inhibit transmissibility, so on and so forth. I think there's going to to be a lot of stuff about the claims that were made about and the the efficacy of of the vaccines that's going to be interesting. Uh, I hope that doesn't damage vaccine vaccine uptake in other areas, but which we shall see. Again, it, I think it's unclear. It's got to be a while before. There's so much data out there, Gary. I mean, hundreds of millions of people in different countries, in different contexts, in different times of rollout and different exposures. Of that the African experience has been weird. I mean, we kept waiting for it to explode in Africa, and it just never did. Also, by the way, something that something that you kept on saying that has now become very clear was that it was very obvious that the two biggest predictors for serious illness were age and obesity. But for whatever reasons, it was all about age and very little about obesity in the in the in the communication. Yeah, which was kind of shocking when you actually because it was the stats on that were unambiguous about the impact it would have, and it it just makes sense as well that increased weight would would put increased pressure on the respiratory system and that that would, in the case of a severe infection, be a real problem. But yeah, we didn't see that. We didn't see go to the gym, maybe eat less. It was just, and I don't know, I I think it's it's one of the marks, I think, of areas in which Western society is, is not really serious about certain things. Like, we don't feel that we have the right to come out and say, oh, by the way, your weight may kill you here. But Michael, as someone who could certainly afford to lose a few pounds, I found when I found that out, I was like, oh, I should probably lose some weight. And actually it quite helps because it gives you a feeling of control, even if that control is limited, rather than a feeling of total disassociation of what's going to happen to you because everything you read is just a diet of fear and death without an explanation other than, well, you may just be too old. I mean, this is a, a, a whole other subject and we're not going to get to it now. You're talking about you know, talking about certain things and not talking about others. This modern movement of what is it? Fat, fat positivity or size positivity has to be one of the weirdest, most fucked up things to come out of the postmodern PC generation. Yeah. We're we're now pretending to people that there are no downsides, and I speak as a fat person. The idea that there are no Yo, fat is beautiful. Fat is okay. Fat's good. No, it's not. I mean, okay, you're not saying okay. Basic fucking vortices of once upon a time should be applicable. You know, you don't comment on people. Don't make personal remarks about people's shape of their size. You don't stare at people in the street. I mean, basic things your mother taught you when you were a child. But as an individual, the idea that you should be telling people, okay, there, are no downsides, no problems. You have to be fat positive. Yeah, you should be people positive. You should support people. But, I mean, we... It's just really... It's just... Gary, we just know, and we've known for a long time, that being fat is bad for you. I mean, it just is. I mean, getting fat... The things that you do to get fat are bad for you. 
Just the state of being obese is bad for you. The inflammation in the blood, I mean, the effects that it has on cancer, it has on heart condition, the effect it has on crazy, all sorts of things. And also the fact that, by the way, you get to a certain age in your life where you have a, you're essentially handicapped. You've made yourself disabled because you're just not able to do all sorts of things that you need to be able to do, but you won't be able to do them. So being fat when you're 20 is one thing, Gary, because you have youth on your side and vigor and you can carry the weight. Being fat when you're 60 is a whole different story. Anyway, I don't want to that. But it just strikes me as a bizarre thing. And maybe the reason they're doing it is because of what they're seeing is all across the West, this increase in obesity. And they think they don't know how to stop it. They don't know how to do anything about it. So they think, well, since we can't do anything about it, we can't seem to be able to stop it. Let's just not talk about it. Whatever about the, the, the body positivity kind of thing, the one that really annoys me is the, the health at any size movement, which has many forms, but you run into quite a lot of people in it who deny that being overweight to whatever degree is detrimental to your health. Last year, Michael, I walked the Barrow Way, which is uh, about 120 miles through mountainous terrain. It's, it's down in, um, in Cork. If you're interested in hiking, I very much recommend it. It's beautiful. But there were parts of it, Michael, which were grueling. And it's one of those things that very quickly you become aware of the weight you're carrying in a way that you wouldn't in everyday life because everyday life is designed to be as convenient as possible and to remove physical exertion. But when you are walking up the side of a mountain, you can feel the weight bearing you down, that it is making you worse at it. And it becomes abundantly clear that regardless of how healthy you are in general, you would be healthier if you lost some weight. Yeah, but Gary, I would go beyond that and say, and that's, if we want to talk about this, maybe we get a doctor on, but the simple fact is, you're not, I mean, it is possible. It, I mean, to a degree, maybe certain people who are, who are, are overweight. And I'm not, we're not talking here about being seven or 10 pounds over, don't properly overweight. It, we know that there are issues, there are other, there are all sorts of concomitant issues there that just are not good for your health. Even, even aside to the fact that, as you say, when you find yourself going up a hill, it is fucking, it, excuse me, I'm swearing more today, I don't know why. It's bad. It's it's not something you want to do. You want to stay on the flat or very gentle inclines, which is why for someone like me, a walk around Venice is far more pleasant than a walk around Rome, all up and down those hills. Let alone, I mean, do you remember when we went? We were at a conference in in Lisbon, and I said to you, we're coming back from the port. I said we were going through the city. I said, there are no fat people in this city because if you're either Lisbon just makes you stay thin. Because it's a diet of it's a diet of grilled fish and a lot of walking up and down hills, or maybe the fat people just stay at home because you can't move because it's not designed for fat people. And maybe just maybe that's the best thing about it. Just you, you can go around Lisbon; it'll keep you thin. But anyway, Gary, uh, I think maybe the time has come. I, anyway, it's in the new. It's in the independent. It's all online. People should go and have a look at it. But for the time being, I think we should. We will wish you a good week, a good Sunday, and we will be back uh, next week when it will be March. All the best.